So if you want to stay sober, you're in the right place. Um, it's great to be in Austin. I really wish that I were with you people right now and not staring at my stupid laptop. I wish that we were in the same room together, but this is what we have right now. And so I'm just kind of going with it. I'm going with the virtual. I'm going with the electronic. Uh, much to my dismay, but still a pleasure to be here. And I love Texas. I've been there a few times. I never really stayed. I just kind of passed through. I was in uh, Amarillo in 1977 which is a story for another time. I think that's the, in the square part of the top, right? Amarillo's up there a long time ago, 17-year-old kid on a Greyhound bus, but I'm not going to tell the story. So I, uh, I've been there a few times, like I said, passing through. I've never been to Austin, unfortunately. And hopefully before too long, you know, I'll get a chance to uh, see some of you people in person. It'd be, it'd be wonderful. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I love Texas. Um, I love Minnesota. I love California. I love New York. You know, I love the United States of America. I love the world probably a little bit too much. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. We certainly have time. Uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. And I'm going to say a couple of things that I always say, um, Whenever I speak in AA, it is always an honor. It's always a privilege. And again, I'm very, very grateful to be here. I'm going to say a couple of the things that I always say, and there's a bunch of guys that have heard me many times who are who are in this meeting, so it's not going to sound new to them, but it's certainly going to sound new to you people that I don't know, so here goes. You know, when I say that I'm an alcoholic, what that means is that when I'm drinking, which is most of the time, there is no second place. There's no job. There's no girlfriend. There's no bill. There's no nothing that is going to get in the way of me and the next drink. And this one right here, not really the one that counts. The one that I'm looking for is the next one. Now, I subscribe wholly to the definition of alcoholism. Um, it's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly in the early chapters uh, when it talked about, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I was born in Rochester, New York, which is on Lake Ontario, about 350 miles northwest of where I'm sitting right now. You know, kind of middle-class family, very loud, dramatic family of, uh, you know, really hardcore Italian-Americans. All the cliches fit these people. They're hilarious, and I love them. And I was, I was brought up by uh, very generous, very loving people, and I always take care to point that out. I've heard a lot of really tough stories in AA. Mine's not one of them. It just isn't. Every problem that I had, I mean, I created. Sure, I had a couple of bad breaks. 
but uh, I manufactured my own misery. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff until I started coming to AA. But, you know, I was to blame for my problems. Uh, I started drinking when uh, I was a young, young kid, 14 years old. The local brew up there is Genesee. Our one and only brewery makes it best. It's on, I want to say, State Street in downtown Rochester. And with the the uh, hipster explosion of cheap beer, which I think is kind of it's kind of gone away now, it'd be like the equivalent of your Lone Star. I think Lone Star is a much bigger brand, but uh, Genesee was a regional brand, and they had this uh, this this special kind of special beer that was called Cream Ale, Genesee Cream Ale. And I mean, at that time, you could probably get a six-pack for $1.99. I'm not exaggerating. It's a long time ago. Like I said, I was a boy. And the first time that I remember drinking to deliberately get drunk, like that was the point of it. I was hanging out with these guys. Uh, We were sleeping overnight someplace. We had like an encampment, (laughs) some kind of tent or fort situation bunks and we were drinking our Genesee cream ale you know smoking cigarettes and just getting you know hammered five cans of beer is gonna kick the ass of a 14 year old boy and uh, I did mine and uh, you know from that first time there was no second place so I'm 14 years old and the most important thing in my life is getting to the next drink. Most important, I couldn't wait until I could do this again. I had so much fun. I couldn't wait to get drunk again with my buddies. I soon moved into um, harder stuff. We started drinking. Uh, I don't know if you guys had this in Texas. Did you have Tango? You might have had something like Tango pre-mixed cocktails so you could buy like uh screwdrivers you could buy uh bloody marys you could buy they're mostly vodka drinks as i recall but you get the whole bottle and slug that thing down you know (laughs) obviously good times right and it was really cheap too and i didn't have to deal with anything like a hangover i mean i was a kid uh but at that time, in the state of New York, the drinking age was 18, 18 years old. And I was hanging around with my little crew of juvenile delinquents, and we all had, a, you know, a little bit of money. Everybody had a little bit of money, and it was cheap. So we used to go to these bars uh, that were basically like restaurants. I remember this one place called Kinsella's Long Gone. That was like a hot spot for underage drinking. Now, it was a legitimate restaurant, but dinner was done. These old people, dinner was done by probably 8, 30, 9 o'clock. And then uh, the high school kids would come in. And I remember being there 15 years old. I looked 15 years old. I might have had a little puberty mustache going at that time. But I certainly looked 15 years old. And I walked up to the bar and Rather than order a pitcher of 
Genesee Cream Ale because I thought the bartender, who was probably a man of about my age now, so he was probably about 60 years old, and I'm sure everyone looked young to him, just the way everybody looks young to me now. And he was half-cocked, and uh, I said, uh, let me have a uh, Johnny Walker Black on the Rocks. If they had that, they might have had Johnny Walker Red, Dewars or whatever it was, Scotch on the Rocks, called call brand top shelf you know johnny walker black on the rocks figuring that the guy wouldn't ask me for identification if i ordered something as sophisticated and grown up as a scotch you know looking back on it now i'm sure that guy would not have cared if i dropped dead right in front of him he had didn't care how old i was you know, I had a $10 bill in my hand or whatever it was, and took the money and he gave me the drink and that was it. And thus began, you know, my love affair with um, spirits, right? particularly scotch whiskey. And I'll tell a story about gin a little bit later, but I love, I love whiskey and I love gin. It doesn't make you bloated. It gets you really high. It feels great. And, uh, you know, I can really put it away. I can really put that stuff away. And... And, you know, when I got to AA, and I'm not, I'm kind of going out of order here, but when I got to AA, you know, everyone was talking about blackouts, blacked out, this blackout, blackout, I came out of a blackout, blackout, blackout. It's like, I, I never blacked out. I never blacked out. I could drink a fifth of scotch and I could be fine. Now, of course, I was blasted drunk, but on the outside, at least I thought I was maintaining my composure. Because the way that I came up, nobody was ever drunk. They were half drunk or three quarters drunk, or as we used to call it, going strong. He was going strong. I saw him Thursday night. He was on his 19th cocktail. My man was going strong. Now, obviously, you know, you drink a fifth of scotch, you're obliterated. You have six martinis. That's like 18 drinks. You're drunk, bro. You're drunk. But, uh, you know, it was a certain a test, old school, certain kind of test of manliness not to show. And that really kind of governed uh, my approach toward drinking for the rest of my life, you know. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit easier to cover up than it is at other times, but that's the way that I came up drinking. I drank whiskey, I drank gin, I drank in bars. Um, all my life. And so one thing and another, you know, I'm always having trouble in school. I'm always having trouble at home. My father's very strict, kind of disciplinarian. I'm, I'm always jammed up one way or another. I'm getting my ass kicked. Um, quitting school, being suspended, going back to school, etc. I was a smart kid, you know. I could have done well. I could have done very well if I had applied myself just a little bit. But, you know, I was too cool for that. I was too good for that. And everyone can tell how smart I am. So I don't really care about your test scores. I don't care about your SATs. I don't care about your grades. I'm way too good for that. So I thought. Uh, and so you can see that the attitudes now in my late teens attitudes are starting to take over 
the complacency, the arrogance, uh, the condescension, dismissiveness, all of that stuff born of pride is a huge problem in my life. So by some miracle, uh, I I grant actually it wasn't by a miracle. There were two things I had to do. Mr. Smarty Pants had to go to night school, night school, to complete the required credits to graduate from high school. And then I had a, a very kindly English teacher whose name was Alice Webster. Um, she's passed. Miss Miss Webster. Miss Webster's gone. Uh, Miss Webster in, intervened on my behalf and said, "You gotta, you gotta let this guy graduate," and they did. And um, I had a job selling Lincolns and Mercury's right out of high school. New new cars, used cars. I was a used car salesman. Nineteen years old. I'm selling, you know, luxury cars. Right. I was never really that much good at it. But what was great was everybody that I worked with is just a bust out, full on, well advanced alcoholic. Guys were crashing cars all the time. They give you a car to drive because you work for the dealership. Guys were always crashing. I never, uh, I, I never, I never crashed. Um, I never crashed, but I got fired from that job and I ended up going to a community college uh, in Rochester and I went for two years and then I went to a state school here. And the important, probably salient, relevant fact that you guys care about is that, you know, my drinking at that point was like a hundred miles an hour. I had, I had nothing, nothing holding me back. Um, I had government money. I had an aunt. God rest her soul, who was sending me money all the time. And basically, I just spent that money on drinking and getting extra money. I spent on drinking and getting high. Plus, I worked. And I had, you know, government loans and grants and all that stuff. So that's where all the money went. Um, but a really significant thing is I, I, I went to, uh, like, a study abroad program. And I lived in Paris for a year and I went into the, whatever it is, the guidance office or the, whatever the program was called. And I told the guy I wanted to go somewhere and he said, I think you should go to Paris. And I was said, really? And he said, yeah, no, I think you have a really good time there. And I said, okay. So I signed up for that. Didn't know a lick of French, didn't know anything about anything. But I knew that there was this large American expatriate movement uh, in Paris in the 20s and before the Second World War, after the first and before the second, this large American expatriate movement and uh, very romantic. And I was, you know, really, really into all that. I was really into Ernest Hemingway. I was into Scott Fitzgerald. At the time, I really loved Henry Miller. I think he's written one good book, but I liked it. And I was trying to, you know, I got a lot of breaks. I had a lot of. Uh, I had a lot of advantages. I had a lot of good fortune. And, uh, you know, that shouldn't go without being set. And I was, I was working. I had a job teaching these very proper French ladies how to speak English, which just meant, you know, making them read some newspaper articles and 
correcting faulty verb tense here or there. Oh no, not this, it's this. That was my job. They were inviting me over to their homes for lunch. They had servants. I mean, the whole thing was just like amazing. And I blew that. Of course I did. That's, that's, uh, that, that's a pattern. That's the patterns being established of like, you know, opportunity and advantage just being completely thrown over because the most important thing for me to do was drink. And I was drinking every day there. Um, I sort of sought out to do that. Anyway, I come back. I'm in Rochester briefly. I get a couple of jobs. I get a little stake together and I move to Staten Island. Staten Island where Phil Ring's uncle, Mike Ring, had uh, retired from the New York Police Department. I don't know if Mike is still living or not. Mike had an apartment on Staten Island and he didn't want to give up and it was cheap. And uh, a couple of Phil and me and a couple other guys bundled into this place on Staten Island. I lasted there a couple months. I got a place in uh, in an area of Manhattan called the East Village. Some people call it Alphabet City, Lower East Side, that area, if you were to look at it on the map in 1984. Very, very different world, although it's kind of turning back the other way now, which is kind of interesting. All drugs, uh, all drinking, prostitution, crime, etc., etc. Perfect. And it fit right in. And I started to realize, because again, you know, nothing, things have not, and this is something I was, I was going to say about, you know, the early chapters of the, of the book Alcoholics Anonymous in, uh, in the chapter uh, more about alcoholics, talks about how the drinking problem gets worse, never better. Always worse, never better. And whether it was a time off or whether I was, you know, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was switching gears, you know, um, whether I wasn't doing drugs or I was doing drugs, I pretty much was always doing drugs. And I met this very nice girl and uh, we moved in together. She was from Australia, very nice Australian girl. Uh, she had a, she had a job. She had a straight job. You know what I was doing at that time. I may have been selling books outside. Maybe I was doing that in Central Park in the kiosks up on Fifth Avenue and 60th Street. I had that job for a couple of years. Very low stress, I must say, um, and afforded plenty of you know drinking and, and and drugs. And they bought my lunch. I don't think they meant to buy my lunch, but they bought my lunch every day. Um, so I'm living with Sheridan, and we take this place on, uh, oh, I just said her name. Um, I'm living with Sheridan in, uh, on East 10th Street between 1st Avenue and Avenue A in a duplex apartment, which was brand new. Brand new duplex apartment. It still smelled like paint. We had the basement, and two recent college graduates who had just gone to work on Wall Street were uh, occupying the upstairs. So it was one, two, three bedrooms, but the bedroom situation downstairs was the whole, was kind of like the whole basement. There was plenty of room down there for two people. Um, 
And at that time, at that time, and I was trying to think earlier too, like, what kind of story can I tell? You know, what can I say that's going to be emblematic, that's going to really represent what I am when I'm drinking, which is, as I said, most of the time. Uh, so I had these aspirations of being a writer. I had a royal typewriter or Underwood or whatever it was, and a folding table that I set the Underwood up at. And, um, you know, I would type out a couple lines, start to get a little bit restless. Writing's hard. You've got to concentrate, you know. you really got to be in it. you got to really want to do it. And I thought that I did. I would tell you that I did, but nah, there were things that were more important, and you know exactly what those things were. And so by that point, um, on a kind of like a speed jag, there was a lot of crystal meth around, which was actually new on the East Coast at that time, or the volume of it was new on the East Coast at that time. So I had a batch of that, and I had uh, access to this really beautiful prescription dexedrine that I was getting through a guy named Henry that I worked with. So I got the dexies, I got the crystal, I'm smoking like, I don't know, probably three packs of cigarettes a day, maybe more at that point. Um, and I like to drink gin. So I'm tapping out a few words maybe a line, maybe a paragraph or two on my Underwood typewriter. And right around the corner, this bar had opened up called Village Idiot. I made friends with all of the bartenders. They probably opened at, God knows, 10 o'clock in the morning. Might open at 10, maybe 11. Whatever, whatever it was, by the time they opened, I needed a drink. So I would go in there and start drinking martinis flying on speed, go in there, start drinking martinis. And now my girlfriend, the one with a straight job, who's working in the publishing industry at that time, making like virtually no money and working super hard, would come home to find me like out of my mind at, you know, 5.30, quarter to six in the evening because that's what I had been doing all day. Those things that I just described while she was working to buy groceries, which I didn't need because I wasn't really doing any eating, you know, and paying the rent. That ended very, very, very badly. Um, I've never been crazier than I was at that time. Violent, uh, delusional encounters with the uh, police, and it should have been. I could have fetched myself up there had I known what I know now I didn't know any of you people I didn't know anyone that was sober everybody that I hung out with was at least as bad as me probably worse but certainly as bad so there was no problem at all um and you know things continued along these lines and I'm starting to get the sense that something's wrong I'm a young guy, 26, 27 years old at that point. I'm a young guy, and uh, by this point, I'm, uh, I'm still living in that area. 
you know, bartending, working a couple different places here and there, those kinds of jobs. And I remember being at this dive um, on a New Year's Eve, and it was about maybe five or six in the morning. Like they stayed open later because it was New Year's Eve and they applied for a special license or whatever it was. And, and you know, I remember thinking, like, this something is not right. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I felt terrible. I wasn't drunk. I had been drinking all night long. didn't feel anything from it. You know, the only thing that I felt was empty and sad. And New Year's Eve's a tough night anyway for anybody, I think. End of anything is very hard. And so I went home and, you know, probably didn't give it another thought. Um, and again, you know, things got worse. Uh, you know, fired from everything, kicked out of everything, broken up with, um, beaten up, <laughs> ground down. All of it. I got nowhere else to go, and I'm sleeping at my friend's uh, on my friend's floor. It was actually I had a box spring. I had a box spring with a sheet stretched over it, belonged to somebody's mother. You know, who knows? Ten years before, and a couple of cardboard boxes that contained all of my worldly possessions, and a clock radio that always said six o'clock. And I looked over at the clock radio. Sure enough, six o'clock. And to this day, I cannot tell you, because I don't know, if it was 6 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock at night. And I looked at my cardboard boxes and, uh, you know, the box spring that belonged to somebody's mom, staring up at the ceiling, and I'm thinking, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? And it wasn't as if I wanted to die. I wasn't afraid of dying. I didn't want to die. I was afraid I was going to live and I was afraid that I was going to live in just the manner that I was in September of 1993 when I was sleeping on Muggs Kapensky's floor. Now, I don't know if you want to call it a higher power. I'll talk about that a little bit later. The grace of God, something intervened. I knew some people who were going to meetings around town and this one friend of mine whose name was Jackie was a girl that I was always friends with and you know was kind of close to and I, I called her up and I said hey I think I want to go to one of those meetings and she said well okay meet me at such and such a place and I did you know when I got there and I saw the window shades and I thought saw the steps and I was like oh no all of this again all of this again I learned all about this, you know, when I was in grammar school. Yeah, you're willing your life, and, you know, confession, you know, uh, prayer and meditation, and all this stuff. I just, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's like, I, I just, I just don't want to be so fucked up. I just want to have a good life. That's what I want. I don't want any of this stuff. Like, I want a good life, but I don't want to have to do anything to get it. So I went to uh, I went to a meeting the next day, and I went to a meeting the day after that. I went to a meeting the day after that. And I went to a meeting the day after that. And after about thirty days had passed, I didn't realize that a normal person could feel this well physically. I didn't know that. 
I thought you all felt like shit all the time, just like me. <laughs> That's what I thought. But I was like, wow, I, I'm, I feel good. I feel good. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I'm 33 years old. You know, I'm working out at this point. I'm eating. I'm sleeping. I'm going to my AA meetings. And, uh, of course, I got fired from a job. You know, eight days in, I'm, you're fired. Don't come back. It's a, not a voicemail, a uh, answering machine. Turn on the answering machine. Yeah, Pete, this is Jerry. Uh, listen, I'm not going to need you tonight or any other night. <laughs> so uh, good luck with everything. I was able to turn all my attention to AA. And again, I don't, I don't know where anybody is with any of this stuff. But, you know, the important thing for me at that time was the establishment of a peer group. Like I had a group of friends that weren't doing anything else either that were up all night, that were available to take phone calls, make phone calls, hang out and have coffee. Nobody's really got anything going on. And everybody's in early sobriety, so they're all more or less in the same place. And some people had a little bit more time than some others. Uh, but we really were peers. And, um, you know, that fellowship, that camaraderie, that, that, that togetherness is not really something that I've had the luxury to experience in quite that way since. I have a lot of AA friends. These guys have a lot of time. They're busy. They have, you know, jobs. They have children. They have responsibilities, obligations. And people aren't at large in the way that we were in those days. And so if I had a suggestion for anybody that was new, uh, that's what I would say is, you know, find a peer group. Find a group of your peers, of people that maybe are, like, around your age that you can speak to that are going to, be able to understand you and you're going to be able to understand them and help you out with the program stuff, you know, about maybe three, three, five days into it, I ended up with a sponsor, tiny, wizened, bald-headed Catholic priest named Mike. Might have weighed, you know, 135 or 140 pounds, but he had a grip like a bear trap. He's still living. He's out on the West Coast. He's doing very well. Much older man now. He's in his late 80s, I would say. And I still talk to him occasionally. And he helped me out, you know, just tremendously. And it wasn't like uh, I really had a hard time with that higher power stuff. I mean, I always kind of believed in God. Um, save for a very brief period of fashionable nihilism when I was around 17. may have a different understanding of it today than I did then. I think that our conception and our understanding of God is always evolving. You know, it's always changing. I believe in a much higher power. I believe that everything uh, proceeds from God, and I believe that everything returns to God. I believe God is the ultimate reality, you know, underlying the totality of all things. That's the God that I believe in. And uh, I've had a chance to, I've had a lot of downtime lately, so I've had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of opportunity to really dive into this stuff, and I, I haven't regretted it. 
you know, I've been reading a lot of stuff that's, uh, you know, deep, kind of complicated, it's slow, it's hard, it's about God, it's about thinking, it's about making choices, it's about grace, which is a huge subject in my life, grace, the grace of God. And as the grace of God began to take hold, and as I began to recognize it, you know, for the reality that it was in my life, a lot of good stuff happened. I'll tell you that, a lot of good stuff happened. I, uh, I met a great girl. I mean, I wish I had met her when I was younger, but I didn't. It didn't work out that way for us. Uh, I was, uh, I got married to her when I was 39. She's seven plus years younger than me, so she may have been 32 and about a year after that, uh, our daughter was born. We have a 19-year-old daughter who's everything that you would want a kid. She's fantastic, great kid, smart, she's beautiful. Uh, she works, she works. It's like a full-time job. That's college center back because of all, well, you know why college center backs. She's been with us here in Brooklyn uh, since March. Uh, but she is working and she's, you know, doing the online school thing and whatever with that. Uh, you know, I'm really blessed, very, very fortunate to have, you know, those two in my life. And we were talking about earlier, Joey, I think it was. Joey was reading The Promises. You know, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through and talk about, like, uh, beyond our wildest dreams. The wildest dreams is beyond the wildest dreams. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I have no idea what I would be doing right now if it weren't for those two. I really don't. I don't know where I would be without them. I don't know where I'd be. You know, maybe drunk someplace, and if not certainly spending all of my money on myself, you know, spending money that I didn't have on myself, maintaining some kind of ridiculous lifestyle or image, but thank God I'm not living my life that way today. Um, I've always been very involved in the program. When I say the program, I mean the steps, but, you know, I mean all of it, the fellowship, the meetings, I try to sponsor guys, um, I kind of have a hard time hanging on to them. I'll give them assignments and I'll say, hey, why don't you try this? Or why don't you call me here? Or let's meet there. Or I'm going to this meeting. And then they just stop calling, you know. And it's kind of on them. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm willing and I'm able. And um, I do have some experience to share. Beaming my signal these days more at people that have time than I am the newcomer. Um, I've heard enough about the newcomer uh, to last for a really, really long time. I'm much more concerned, I, I really am, at this point uh, in my progression, which I think is in a positive direction, but I, I'm much more concerned about the guys that have, have time. Uh, and there's the, the guys that have, like, you know, big lives, families, obligations, responsibilities, all that stuff. Who are going sideways and uh, I'm doing the best that I can to communicate the idea that I'm available to help bring them back if that's what they want to do and I'm not talking these guys aren't drinking you know they're not drinking 
There's a lot of crazy behavior, a lot of really stupid choices, uh, a lot of things that I think, you know, I personally would regret if that's where I, what I were doing. Uh, but again, like I said, unless they're asking, I'm not, I'm not really telling. I'm just, I'm around, you know, and I have a lot of good experience to share. And so with all this extra time on my hands, um, I've been spending a great deal of it, you know, in prayer and meditation and some of this kind of study type stuff that I'm doing. And I'm not saying that anything is any better than anything else, but uh, I try to spend as much time as I can, you know, with the God of my understanding, the higher power of my understanding, pretty much on a daily basis. The number of things that I do, maybe you're doing something different and that's okay. Um, pretty much every day. And I start, I realize that... Uh, you know, again, this long period, this endless period that we seem to be occupying, this interminable period that we seem to be occupying, I realize that I can't start the day with any kind of electronic interaction. Cannot do it. No phone, no computer, no television. Uh, I have to get right into the stream of my higher power as soon as I realize that, oh, look, I'm awake, you know. Oh, how about that? I'm awake. And I'm not hungover. And I give myself maybe half an hour or 45 minutes, whether I'm doing some writing, I'll do some praying, I'll do a little bit of meditating. Uh, I'll do some reading. I like to do some reading, some spiritual reading when I wake up, just to orient myself to the day, you know. And I said that some of the stuff that I'm reading is a little, to tell you the truth, it's actually a little bit over my head. It's hard and I have to read slow and I don't like that because I like knowing things. I just don't want to do the work that it takes to know things. That sound familiar to you? Like I wanted to have a great life and I didn't want to do the work that it would take to have a great life. I wanted to be, you know, sober and a good AA guy, but I don't really want to do the things that it would take to get to that point. Uh, and so I get my head screwed on straight for the day within the first like half an hour, 45 minutes or so, maybe the first hour. And then I go from there. And, you know, you can have a, a great life and Alcoholics Anonymous uh, talks about this in a vision for you. You know, the fellowship growing up around you, uh, just the, the closeness, the intimacy that I have with not a lot of people, with some people, um, and, and certainly good relations with just about everybody. I don't have anybody, uh, I don't have a shit list. There's nobody on it. Um, I'm not really mad at anybody. Yeah, if I think about it, probably I am. But these aren't thoughts that go with me on a daily basis. Now, I remember at the beginning of this thing, this interminable period that we're in, I thought, you know, I could actually be helpful. I could actually be helpful. I'm not worried, you know, I'm not worried. I'm concerned. I'm not worried. I'm not afraid to die. I'm just not. But more importantly, uh, I'm not afraid to live, you know, I'm not afraid to live. I'm not, I'm not cowed. 
I'm fearful, none of that stuff. Um, I want to be out there. You know, I don't necessarily want to be in here. I want to spend a certain amount of time in here. You know what I'm saying? You know, talking about things like, wow, how great it would be to be in Austin, you know, maybe one day, see you guys in person. Geez, I'd like to see the guys from my home group in person, you know? That would be a treat. Sometimes I run into guys in my neighborhood. A guy came to visit me today. Completely out of his mind. It's fine. We had a we had a cup of coffee and I sent him on his way. Anyway, Al, I'm running out of stuff to say, and it's 9.53. Um, I'd just like to thank you all for being so patient, you know, and so kind with me. And uh, I really hope that, you know, I've done some kind of good tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, like I said at the beginning, if you want to stay sober, you're in the right place. If you want to stay sober, do the things that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you will stay sober. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter.